Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the seventh aliyah, the seventh section of the Sidra or Parsha of Noah. In the previous aliyah, the previous section, the Torah names goes through the 70 nations. Uh, in addition to describing in detail the Sumerian slash Babylonian Empire, which was started by Nimrod, and tells us that um, all of these nations divided up and dispersed according to their language groups, uh, according to their nationalities, ethnic groups, no doubt. We now return to a period in that time, a formative period during that time, and we focus specifically on the Sumerian Empire, which was detailed, the one started by Nimrod. Um, and essentially we'll see that this Sumerian Empire, the goal of uh, putting together this empire was really to counter the natural movement of the entire previous chapter. That is, rather than the natural tendency for nations to dis- to disperse, uh, to balkanize in, in, to, to some degree, here there is an attempt to unite all of the peoples and tribes into a single empire. Um, and, and as they said, for the purpose of not only gaining fame, but no doubt also as a way of gaining power over people, control, uh, over the world. And the whole world was one language and one vocabulary, or perhaps means one purpose or of one mind. And that is because this story is not meant simply to be an etiology of how people started to form different languages and dialects. That is, due to the will of God, he decided to change human nature, nature so that everybody started speaking different uh, languages in some miraculous way. Um, it, language changes when people divide. That is, the division happens first, and language changes are a natural outcome of that. It is the product of, of human division. It's not the cause of human division. It's not that God causes people to have different languages and they all split apart to those languages. It's the opposite. People split apart and then they develop different dialects and languages. And that, I think, is the meaning of the famous rabbinic Agadah, the Midrash, which says that even after the Tower of Babel, everybody was speaking the same language, but they couldn't understand each other, which means one person thought a word meant this, and the other person thought the same word meant something else. And I'll get back to that very important midrash later. Most commentators say that the one language everybody spoke was the Hebrew language. And I guess I, I need to you know, put in my two cents and say that I, I don't think that given what we know about a, a, ancient language groups and how, uh, how ancient Semitic languages developed one into the other, I don't think that we could really support that idea today. Rather, I would say that Hebrew was a great idea. In fact, the only language that would be able to express the requirements of the Torah, not only the religious requirements, but the transcendental experiences that need to be conveyed by God through his prophets to the Jewish people. Um, and essentially, that language was sort of waiting on the sidelines, waiting patiently to be developed by Avram and his children until uh, it could be used in its full form. Now, of course, a Kabbalistic approach, which is based on the book of Yetzirah, that the world was created with the Hebrew letters and the Bahir, the book of the Bahir, which is really champion, championed by the Ramban, by Nachmanides, would certainly disagree with my approach. But that's how I feel, and I, I, I don't think it's, it's blasphemous, although some people might think that that is... Uh, you know, that, that, um, that it's, um, not mainstream Jewish thought. But I, I don't see any problem with saying that, that, uh, the Jewish language simply, 
uh, was the pièce de résistance of the Semitic languages and, and one that really fully encapsulates the Torah, but not one that was invented at the beginning of the world. And they, they tra- as they traveled out of the west, they found the valley in the land of Shinar, which is known as, which essentially is Sumeria. It translates the word Sumeria, uh, ancient Sumeria, really the first uh, not the first civilization that existed in Lower Mesopotamia, but the first civilization that wrote about itself in, in Lower Mesopotamia, and they settled there. This is why rabbinic literature identifies Nimrod as the leader of this ill-fated mission that we're about to read about, since, as we saw in the previous section, he was the one who built an empire whose cities were uh, essentially the moving capitals of uh, Sumeria, which would later become uh, Acadia slash Babylonia. Ancient Sumeria, uh, geographically, is in southern Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia itself is defined, the word Mesopotamos means between the rivers, and it's the land defined as being between the Tigris River or the Chidekel to the east and the Euphrates to the west. Um, It starts at the Persian Gulf and Sumeria started at the Persian Gulf and ended off um, where the two rivers come together a little bit before they separate again uh, in in about the same uh, uh, area as what is now modern day Baghdad in Iraq. And they said to each other, let us make bricks and let us fire them into fired material and the bricks serve them for stones and the asphalt would be for making piles, meaning that they would use the asphalt uh, to mortar together the, uh, like cement together the blocks of bricks. The bricks themselves were made up of hard-baked clay of some kind. Uh, just a grammatical aside, I know grammar uh, is not always the most interesting of things, but it, it, it's really very important to understand. And whenever you have a hey at the end, hava nil bena, rather than nil abain, nil bena means let us. It's what's called the cohortative. It's a request. Venisrafan, let us burn, rather than we will burn. Um, so it's really one person speaking to the other saying, hey, come on, let's do this. This is a good idea. For instance, the word nelech means we will go, but nelcha means let us go or let my people go in, in a very famous case. Anyway, away from grammar and back to the psukim, vayomru, that is after they decide to make all the bricks, they said, hey, I got a great idea for the next step. Vayomru hava nivne lanu ir, umidal virosho vashamayim v'naasel lanu shem pen, and they said, let us build a city for ourselves and a ziggurat, a tower whose top is in the skies and the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. In the previous chapter, we saw that word nafots, nafuts, uh, which was used neutrally to describe how the nations branched apart sort of naturally and spread out to the four corners of the earth. Here the word is clearly being used negatively as we don't want to be shattered and scattered. We want to stay together. And more importantly, by staying together, we want the fame and no doubt the fa- the power that goes along with the fame of having a named uh, empire that everyone will recognize, respect, and fear. Of course, I'm reading in some of the negative connotations of the people, that they're looking for uh, really a tyrannical kind of uh, empire. Since, uh, And the reason why I'm reading it in, even though really what we've read is very innocuous, a bunch of people want to get together so they could have some unification and be proud of themselves and have uh, fame, 
What's wrong with fame? But, in fact, we'll see that God reacts very negatively to this whole proposition, to this whole plot and plan. And therefore, God would only re- react negatively as if the plan itself was negative. Um, however, since, you know, that, and that, I shouldn't say however, I should say that's why rabbinic literature reads in a, a motives of totalitarianism and, and, and hubris that desires not only to control man, but to displace God as well as the final authority. That, according to rabbinic liter, literature, what they're saying is we make the rules, not God. We enforce the rules. So says Nimrod and these peoples. That's what the rabbis tell us because of the reaction that God has, which is very negative. Um, based on our understanding of the ancient Near East, considering what we know about ziggurats, which is that they were really used for cultic purposes. They weren't, they weren't a way to manage good housing. They were there to house the priesthood and, and they acted as domination of the people who lived below the, in the towns and out in the fields as well and who really gave all of their, uh, goods and services to the priesthood. Um, ziggurats were a form of control. So considering what we know about ziggurats and ancient Sumeria today, I think the rabbinic understanding of this desire for power and totalitarianism is uh, spot on. And the Lord descended to see uh, the city and the towers that the humans had built. Now, clearly God doesn't need to descend from the heavens uh, in order to see anything. So the Torah must be making a point. And that's especially true because not just a question of, you know, anthropomorphizing God and saying, ooh, i got to go down and see what's going on. But the very verse is unnecessary. It's not necessary to the flow of the narrative. If you skip to the next verse, the whole story works just fine. They build the city and God says, hey, I don't like what I see, so I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So why does God include this very uh, uh, anthropomorphistic verse of him going down to see what the city and the, and the, and the tower, the ziggurat that the people are building? Uh, Rashi says that there's a moral lesson that God is showing us that when he judges people, he does so not only after close investigation and due process, uh, that, that that's the way he behaves, and therefore we should behave um, in that way. We should imitate his behavior. Um, I think that in, there may be another um, uh, a point here, uh, which I prefer, which is that the verse essentially shows the ultimate futility of what these empire builders were trying to accomplish. Remember, they wanted to build a great city and a tower with its top in the skies, and they built the tower. And yet God still has to come down. Why does he have to come down to see their work if with their work reached up all the way to the skies? Clearly, it does not reach the heights that they hope for, no doubt not physically, but more importantly, not um, uh, uh, spiritually or, or in power and dominion-wise. And therefore, by God saying he has to come down to see what their works are, he's saying, oh, uh, you know what, what they did doesn't reach me. I still have to come down to them. They are still very much uh, limited to the earth. Vayomer Adonai Hain Am Echad Echat Lechulam Lam Laasot and the Lord said, Behold, they are, they are one nation with one language, and this is what they start to do with it, that is with their unification, uh, uh, which maybe could, should have been a good thing, and this is what they do, these negative things. And again, we're reading in the negative things, but that, that's the only way it makes sense. And continuing with the verse, and now nothing that they plot to do in the future 
will be closed off to them. That is based on their previous action. If I continue to let them be unified, um, essentially they will be successful in continuing to uh, pursue all of their pursuits. There's a very important note here, and I, it was evident in my translation, but I really have to make it clear. And it's based on the Eben Ezra, who I think definitely has the right of it. The word yazimu is not the past tense of the root yazam, yud zayin mem, to initiate. God is in fact not trying to stop them or punish them for what they have done, past tense. It is a future tense verb from the root zayin mem mem, zamam, meaning to devise and to plot, which almost always carries a negative sense. And the word batsar means to be withheld. It really means a fist, the way the fist closes and prevents something from getting out. So what God is saying is they've already demonstrated that they will use their unification not for good, but for their own fame and their own fortune and their own primary position in the world. Therefore, if I continue continue to allow them to have a common language and a common purpose, they will continue and to be continually successful and unstoppable from a human standpoint. I mean, God could do whatever he wants, but other people won't be able to stop them in their devices. Today it is fame, tomorrow it is total dominion of all who surround them and total tyranny. Hava Therefore, let us go down, and there we will mix up their language. Let us mix up, mix up their language, so that none will listen to the to the language of the other. Note again the plural, let us go down, which we had in chapter 1, let us do things, which I said is either the royal we, or it's an attempt that God shows that he, just like he takes consultation before doing significant things, especially such drastic retribution, that we should behave that way as well. Although I think it's just the royal we. Um, here, as I mentioned before, is where the rabbis comment famously, Zeshoel levenav, zemevitit, one guy asks for a brick from the other guy. The other guy brings him pitch or mud instead, which means they're speaking the same language, but they have no idea what they're saying to each other. So the first rises up against the other and cracks open the other guy's head. The literal sense of the Midrash is not the point. It's fanciful and cute, but obviously it's not the point. But the message is dead on, is spot on. They were too united. There were no checks and balances. It's not that God miraculously makes one person say X and the other person thinks that he meant Y. That the word Yishma'u, while it sometimes means to hear, what it really means is to listen to and to obey. To obey another command and instruction. Um, what God introduced here, essentially, was the Democratic and Republican Party, the Whigs and the Tories, the Liberals and the Conservatives. And, and what he does is he causes people to balkanize politically. It's not that he spoke the same language, but all of a sudden the desires of one became at odds with the desires of another. Did he introduce some kind of selfishness, some personal balkanization? I can't say. But what he does is he causes people to not so easily collect together in groups, so single-mindedly. They form smaller groups, each focused on their own narrow purposes. And from this socio-political drift apart, the dialects form as they drift apart, and ultimately wholly different languages are born. Again, it's the chicken and egg situation, or or the court, the, the horse and the, the cart. It's the horse which drives everything else. And the horse here is this social political drift. The dialect and the different languages are merely a result of people splitting apart. 
And the Lord scattered them from throughout the land and they stopped building the city. And that is why they called it, it, it being the land, the empire set up by Nimrod, that is why they call it Bavel, because there the Lord mixed up, the word Balal means to mix together, the languages of the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And now we return to lineage, starting with the primary son, at least from the Torah standpoint, the primary son of uh, of Noah. Ela toledot shem, shem ben ma'at shana vayoledet arpach shad shnatayim acharamabul. These are the generations, the descendants of shem. Shem was 100 years old when he begat arpach shad, two years after the flood. Vayhi shem acharei holidot arpach shad, chamesh me'od shana, Shame lived for 500 years after he got, begat Arpach Shad, and, um, and he gave birth to sons and daughters. Arpach Shad chai chamesh ushloshim shana vayolid et shalach, vayhi Arpach Shad achareho lido et shalach, shaloshanim vayolid shana vayolid banim uvanot. So Arpach Shad lived 35 years and he had, and he gave birth to shalach, and Arpach Shad, um, lived after giving birth to shalach, for 430, 403 years, and he had sons and daughters. So he was 30 years old when he had Aver, and he lived 40 years after beginning uh, Aver, and he had sons and daughters. Shloshim Shana Varbameot Shana Vayolid Banim Uvanot. So he lived for thirty years and had Peleg and he lived after Peleg's he begat Peleg for four hundred and thirty years and he had sons and daughters. Vaychi Peleg Shloshim Shana Vayolid et Ru Vaychi Feleg Acharehodor Ru Tesha Shanim Mataim Shana Vayolid Bani Vanot. So he was thirty years old. When he gave birth, or begat, I should say, he caused to give birth to Ru, and he lived after he gave birth to Ru for 209 years and had sons and daughters. So he was 32 years old when he gave birth to Srug and lived for 207 years after he gave birth to Srug and he had other sons and daughters. So he was 30 years old when he gave birth to Nachor, Srug was, and Srug lived after giving birth to Nachor, after begetting uh, Nachor, he, he lived for 200 years, and he had sons and daughters. Ah, finally we get to the person we, we're going to hear a story about. So he was 29 years old when he had Terach, and he lived for 119 years after Terach. Again, we get these shorter, really shorter and shorter years, which is what God promised uh, even before the flood. It is not a coincidence that just as there were 10 generations from Adam to Noach, there are 10 generations from Shem to Avram, or from Noach to Terach, depending on which way you look at it. And at the very least, what this means is that God is saying the world is restarted. 
And after the ten generations, which unfortunately everybody died from that, with Noah as a new Adam, ten generations get us to the next significant phase in history. But things turn out better, because whereas Noah was not able to save the world, Avram is able to save, not always, as Stone and Amora get destroyed, but at least he's able to save little bits of the world. And ultimately, Avram does transform the entire world, um, and... Uh, to the point where today the majority of the world uh, believes in the God of Abraham and the moral requirements of moral monotheism. Ve'ele toldot terach, terach holidet Avram, and Nachor, ve'taran, ve'haran holidet Lot. And these are the generations, the offspring, the transformative uh, events that began with Terach. Terach begat Avraham and, uh, I'm sorry, not Avraham, at this point we're still Avram, and Nachor and Haran, and Haran begat Lot, Lot. Uh, it is significant that Terach is honored with the words Ela Toldot, which means, I think, that something important happens because of the result of what he does. And I think the Torah is giving uh, him credit for it. I'll point out what that something is. In my opinion, uh, shortly, Vayamot Haran al and Haran died in the face of his to the face of his father Terach in the land he was born in. That is in the land that Haran was born in, in Ur of the Chaldeans, meaning in Ur, which was in the time of Moses when he gave the Torah, uh, in the territory that was belonging to the Chaldeans, were also known as Bavel. Rashi cites a harshly critical rabbinic midrash that al Terach means Terach caused the death of his son Haran. That Terach was reporting Avram to the authorities, uh, as specifically one authority named Nimrod, the head of this little uh, this little empire or this big empire, because Avram smashed his father's idols. But when Nimrod threw Avram in the fire, Avram in the fire, Avram was not burned. And yes, there are a lot of connections to this story and what would happen during the exile. Some, let's see, some uh, well thousand years later. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar throws Daniel's friends into the ovens, but that's a different story. Um, so Avram survives. Uh, uh, Avram survives the, the 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 ovens. He does not get burned up. Uh, but then Haran, who was emboldened by his brother's success, by Avram's success. He didn't really believe in Avram's religion, but he figures with Avram's success, he could challenge Nimrod as well. But uh, he did not survive the challenge. Haran did not survive the Avram, uh, the, the ovens of Ur Kazdim. Um, so, therefore, it really points a very, very, uh, a very critical finger at uh, at Terach and how he was really mixed up and uh, religious in all the terrible ways. But the plain sense of the word Al Terach, which Rashi also says right up front, is that he died while his father was still alive, which is simply a terrible tragedy. And I, I prefer the Pshat over the Medrash for the following reason. I think Terach was not a negative character at all. I think he was a very positive character. First of all, the Torah seems to hint at that by giving him an Eila Toldot. The Torah has an Eila Toldot for Yitzchak. It has an Eila Toldot for Yaakov. But no Eila Toldot for Avram. Instead, it's Terach that gets the Eila Toldot. But I think there's another positive thing he did. Haran, and this is it. Haran was born in Ur, which is the city in Sumeria, Babylonia, very south of Baghdad, deep into the uh, Mesopotamia, uh, essentially in, in near what is modern-day Kuwait. Avram, who is older than Haran, is born in the city of Haran, which is an Aramaic city, an Aramite city, on the Euphrates in the northwest corner of Mesopotamia, hundreds of miles away from Ur, very close to the Mediterranean. In fact, now we know this because you'll read in the beginning of Lachachah, it says Avram should go, uh, God commands him to go from the place 
where he was born. And at that time, he was in Haran, which means Avram, the older son, was born in Haran, which means Terach, who was an Aramite, just like Avram is an Aramite, of course, are both from Haran, close to, well, not Israel, but much closer to Israel, um, essentially in southern Turkey, northern Syria, that area, close to the Mediterranean. And Terach, this Aramite from the city of from Haran, chooses to make an incredibly long pilgrimage to Ur in Samaria, where Haran is born. Now, Ur was a religious city. We know about Ur today. We've dug up parts of Ur today. It's a cultic city. It's used exclusively for religious purposes. You don't go there to buy a nice apartment on the Riviera and hang out. You go there when you are searching religion. It's it's like our Vatican City in this time. It has one purpose, which is purely, uh, uh, I, I want to say cultic, but I don't mean the negative sense of the word cult, but meaning that it's all about the performance and the, and the, and the searching out of religion. You only go there if you're looking for a religious purpose. So, Clearly, that's what Terach was doing and leaving his home and traveling pilgrimage style hundreds and hundreds of miles. Then, when what Terach, ter, when Terach's pilgrimage costs his son his life, he leaves. But rather than just going home to Haran, his intended destination is very surprising, which we'll see. But first, let's read a little bit about his family. Vayikach Avram v'nachor lahem nashim et shem eshet Avram sarai. Sorry, shame Eshet Avram Sarai, Vashem Eshet Nachor Milka Bat Haran Avi Milka Vavi Yiska. And Avram and Nachor, Terach's two remaining children, acquired wives for themselves. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nachor's wife was Milka, the daughter of Haran, who, Aran, was the father of Milka, which is obvious, it's circular, but he was also the father of Yiska, who, according to rabbinic tradition, is Sarai, meaning both Avram and Nahor marry their nieces. Marry, well, a different niece. And they marry, essentially, Haran's two daughters, one for each, which is sort of like a weird yibum of sorts, because it has a very good intention, and the intention is to extend the life of their dead brother by giving him more lineage, by marrying his daughters and having more kids, albeit, even though he doesn't, albeit, you know, possibly Haran is dead. I think there's another reason for them marrying Haran's daughters. Keep in mind, they're still in Ur in Sumeria, which is populated, the ethnic group there are the descendants of Ham. And uh, they wanted to marry Semites, given the history that they knew about Ham and Canaan, although it's not Canaan's kids, but still it's Ham and his relationship to Noah, and I don't think that they wanted any part of it, just like Avram tells his children that not to have any part of the Canaanite children. Uh, women. Vatihi Sarah Akara Ain Lahvalad. But Sarah was barren and she had no children. This of course is foreshadowing uh, not events that happen here, but events that we will see in later parashots. And now we get to the verse which to my mind is clear proof that Terach, with all of his faults, is a positive character and deserved to have a son like Abraham uh, like Abraham. That is you needed a personality, a father like Terach to be able to produce a superstar like Abraham. I'll read that again. And Terach took Avram, his son, and Lot, Haran's son, who was also his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, who was married to his son Avram, and they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But as he came to Haran, he settled there. The surprise is, Terach was on his way to the, to the promised land. He was making Aliyah. And the question is why? 
Did he get a prophecy also from God, which is not recorded? Or maybe he wasn't up to the level of prophecy like Abram was, but did he get some kind of feeling, some kind of sense that the answers to his religious questions were not to be found in Ur, but they were that where where they were where Sumeria was building its ziggurats, but but they were to be found in the land of Israel, or what would be a future land of Israel. Perhaps Avram got the prophecy and said, Hey Dad. Um, the God that I believe in, the one who inspired me to destroy all of your wrong-headed attempts at religion, and that's the point of that Midrash, wants all of us to go to the Promised Land, uh, to Canaan, and find religion there, to find God there. You want to go with me? So maybe Tarek says, okay, son, if you say that's where we should be going, I'll go along. That's what seems to be going here. What else is inspiring uh, Canaan? He doesn't go home to Haran. He goes to Canaan, or his intention is to go to Canaan, and that intention that he, he wants to go to Canaan says to me that Tarek was looking for God. He may have been looking in all the wrong places, but at least he was looking for God and that kind of religious curiosity. First he treks all the way down to Ur and he doesn't find what he wants there. It costs him his life. Then he says, oh, now I'm going to go to Israel and try there. There's a man who's searching for God even though he is misguided. And and the truth is, he does, I think, what many people would do. When he gets back to Haram, which is his hometown, the town where Avram was born, and clearly where he was born as well, and which is on the long road from Ur to Canaan, that is, as you're traveling from Ur up the Euphrates, all the way around then to uh, to Israel, you have to pass through Haran. You have pretty much no choice. So maybe he gets back home for what he figures will be a five-minute stop, and he says, listen, you know, everything's familiar. I have all my friends. I'll just stop here. And then, essentially what happens next, Parsha, is it's up to Aliyah to walk the final mile, to to go where no man has gone before. This explains why Terach never found God for all his attempts to do so, which means I, I don't think he was a bad guy. He was just like an 80% kind of guy. He he never carries it through. He never forces himself into the tough decisions that Avram was trying to force him into by by all those midrashim, which where Avram is trying to say, how could it be that this God is the, is the God of this, and that God is the God of this, if this guy could destroy the other guy, then who's the most powerful? Terach just doesn't want to push it all the way through to the proper conclusions, or maybe he just doesn't have the capacity. But I think he must have some capacity in order to raise Avram in a place where Avram could take maybe some inspiration from his father, take all the good things about his father, Terach, and turn them into something which is a revolutionary, a religion which is not just an evolutionary progress of religion, but which revolutionizes the idea of a God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and, and essentially, Avram comes to all the right conclusions about God and God's relationship to mankind and mankind's responsibility to God in his world. And Terach's lifespan was 205 years, and he dies in Haran. So, as I said, it will be up to Avram to believe in and understand God enough to complete the mission to Eretz Yisrael.